Hi everyone, welcome to Startups of the Week. I am Natasha Mascarinas, and I'm here with Owen Thomas. Hey there. And Alex Wilhelm. Hey guys. This week we have another three startups for you, and our first one is a San Francisco company that helps designer sketch pads transfer to your shelves. It basically is a company that creates 3D renderings of anything from shoes to handbags and lets its consumers vote on what they like, what they don't like, and what they would change about it. Depending on the interest, it um, moves it from idea to production and then eventually shelves. So what's the name of this mysterious company? It is called Beta Brand. We've covered it in the past. Um, And yeah, they've been getting a lot of attention recently, especially because of the 3D rendering um, offering. So, you know, I know Beta Brand historically, I've spoken to the founder, Chris Lindlin, and their their original shtick was, you know, they would release a crazy pair of like, you know, silvery pants and then encourage their customers to send in photos of themselves wearing these crazy silver pants to parties or what have you. So it, it, it sounds like they've taken this, you know, beyond social media and into the third dimension of real space. But it seems like a great idea. And, you know, one thing Beta Brand did is they've, you know, they opened up a store in the Mission some years ago. And now that they've got a physical showroom, they can show you not just things they have made, but things they might make. And that sounds like a big win and a smart use of the fact that they exist online and offline. I think this is super, super cool. I wonder if they can do kind of more outrageous things. Uh, if they had the 3D rendering to voting to then production model, I wonder if you can push the envelope further if you have more flexibility in what you know will sell. Because maybe, you know, something really wild would do well, but you wouldn't build it because you didn't know before. So now you can take kind of bigger creative leaps because they're not inherently creative risks because you have kind of some market data before you go into production. I think it could be super neat. I feel like the beta brand has kind of found that, you know, it, it has a few strengths, you know, people like the kind of like uh, sweatpants, dress pants stuff. They like the travel gear. Chris said that their biggest success has been with shoes, actually, with 3D rendering, just because people really? people yeah. are the most keen on buying 3D renderings of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder I wonder if that's because you can kind of render the whole shoe exactly how it will look, whereas a shirt or a pair of pants is pretty much like person dependent, but a feet kind of just squeeze into shoes. So they're probably more accurate like representations of what it will be when it's in the real world. They are definitely an area where people, you know, play the peacock and yeah, you know, definitely. Kind of show off. Play the peacock. Yes. It's a new one. <laughs> That's it's an old school <laughs> phrase. Well, I, you know, one thing we talked about earlier when we were prepping for the show is that some companies that make a lot of what's called fast fashion end up having a lot of misses. And what they end up doing is throwing away stuff or in one kind of famous case with H&M, somehow turning it into power plant fuel. What, what was that story? Yeah, so a couple reports um, explain how a Swedish power plant was taking all of the H&M overstock and burning them for fuel, which is just an image in itself. And I could leave it there, but I'm sure Owen. <laughs> well, it's I, I mean, it's it's part of the you know it's part of the idea of fast fashion is that rather than uh, rather than commit to a line of clothes like a year, eighteen months in advance, and then have a major disaster, you know, in the future. Uh, as we've seen with Gap and, you know, J. Crew, if they kind of guess fashion trends wrong, they just move on. Like, you know, fast fashion like H&M and Zara just produce stuff. If it sells, great. If not, they've got something else coming down, you know, in a month. So that does produce some waste. Um, I, I will say that the it sounds like the Swedish power plant was burning coal previously. Right. So, you know, 
I'd say if this stuff is going to end up in a landfill or it can actually be cleaner power, I'd go for cleaner power. Definitely preference. But it's still, you know, it still just doesn't feel quite right. Yeah, it feels weird. Um, other companies have also kind of latched onto this idea, I'm sure, of um, making less overstock and using um, this more creative um, way of selling products. Timberland is one that Chris Lindland, the CEO, um, explained to me. He said that the company, which you might recognize for its um, chunky boots that I, as a Boston schoolgoer, wear often during all seasons, <laughs> um, that Timberland signed on with Beta Brand for a collaboration. And they're selling some of their classic boots, um, but letting consumers also weigh in on that. Which I think is interesting. I, I, what interests me is the fact that Beta Brand is working with Timberland. You know, they could be competitors, but I think Beta Brand is kind of realizing they're not going to be like a Nike or you know, you know, or some huge brand like that. So the way for them to actually make a lot of money may not be selling their own stuff, but actually selling their technology that they've developed uh, to other to other companies, and that well, maybe actually higher margin business at least. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely saw that as like an affirmation that other companies are going to be starting this 3D rendering process and trying to include the consumer more in the product design as well. So um, Chris definitely knows and definitely mentioned that that's something that they're looking at now, um, getting brands that aren't just beta brand on that site um, and into its loyal customers' hands. <laughs> well, I think it's super cool and I'm excited to see what happens on the tech side because if this becomes the norm, it could actually change how we approach shopping in general. But that is, you know, a lot of um, adoption later. So pretty far off in the future. Definitely. Our next startup is 42 Floors, which is not 42 Floors, or we don't know if it is. It is a San Francisco company that is a search engine and it helps people find commercial real estate that can be used for anything but mostly offices it was recently acquired by notel which designs and builds operate um custom office spaces and that's k-n-o-t-e-l yes and not to be confused with a notel motel no no not at all <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah the acquisition um kind it kind of means that it's that notel is trying to tap into 42 floors database of property um and bring startups and other companies that are looking for flexible terms and custom space somewhere to go and somewhere to tap into because it's this the listings and the real estate's annoying process processes are confusing but this isn't um this isn't co-working this isn't kind of a we work analog or at least the company itself doesn't claim that it is when they talk to you well i i would argue it has the same idea you know we work takes a big office space and kind of breaks it down into smaller chunks you know they they sign long leases on big buildings and they break them down into smaller chunks of space and time that startups and you know freelancers can kind of digest. I think that Notel is seeing the same trend, which is that people don't want to be stuck with a three-year lease. You know, when they've just got a startup that has seed funding that may not be around in six months. Um, Alex, I've told you tales of you know the the horrors of the dot-com bust. Oh, One yeah. of the big problems is that startups signed you know these expensive long-term leases, thinking that you know the boom would go on forever. And it left a lot of empty buildings behind. And if they had been in, you know, either a WeWork or a NoTel kind of situation, um, they, you know, they would have been able to close up shop kind of gracefully with fewer, you know, with fewer financial entanglements trailing behind. 
It's fascinating to hear you tell that story, though. To, uh, we talked about it a couple of times over the last few years as things have gotten even you know, more heated in Silicon Valley, because it's, it's hilarious to think about there being open and available real estate in San Francisco or the Bay Area, because there's just none right now. And so to think about whole buildings going kind of unrented for some period of time, I can't get my head around what that would be like as an environment to work in in the Bay. It just, it feels like a different planet or a different century that you're talking about, not really just like I don't know, 15, 18 years ago. Well, that's the thing. You, I mean, you have to, you know, you could have space, but it may not be appropriate for, you know, kind of modern offices. So again, you know, I'd say the the similarities, WeWork or, or Notel, it sounds like they take the space and kind of make it palatable. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that definitely. Looked, uh, that's, that was a clarification that I want. I talked to them about too, because it gave me the similar ring. I guess something that differentiates Notel from WeWork or other co-working spaces is uh, word for word. They said that their product isn't sterile glass cubes for freelancers or small companies. They focus a lot on the custom aspect of it, which I think will definitely appeal to some customers. Yeah. Keep in mind that WeWork is moving up the chain. And, you know, for example, in Mountain View, they're building an entire office just for Facebook. Right. I think people, they're, they're starting to realize that they can't just be a glass cube. Yeah. What's wrong with glass cubes? I know we need to move we're, on, but like, we're, you know, we're I would take a, a glass cube because it sounds You nice. know, we're in a glass cube <laughs> right now with our producer, King Kaufman, and uh, and it's a happy place it to be. It is a happy place. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get all the hate. Uh, the only thing that I would say is I just want a door. That's the one thing modern offices don't have. Give me glass walls, but just give me a door so I can have some peace. Jeez. I hate open floor plans. They are just the bane you of my You should talk life. to No Tell. Who knows? <laughs> and just demand, <laughs> demand Yes, you should just make, make me one of these. <laughs> no context given. Because that's how you make friends. <laughs> that's what I've been told. Anyways, we should move on. Our last startup we're focusing on is called Applovin, and it helps mobile mobile game developers market their apps and make money. They um, we're focusing on them because they recently raised four hundred million, inclusive of debt, um, in it's a, a round, mixture of debt and equity. Mixture of debt and equity, um, and it's led by a global investment firm, KKR. Uh, the cool thing about this um, company is that they kind of help the little guys, um, the small indie de- game developers that have a great idea. They have the app made, but they need help getting attention on the app store, basically. By the way, Natasha, you've got to read Barbarians at the Gates okay. to learn about KKR. It's so good. Oh, boy. Two yeah. recommendations. Okay. Yeah. Double recommendation Double. for Barbarians at the Gates. Getting back to App Lovin'. So, you know, I I typically spend 99 cents on a game, if, if that. Um but is this actually a big business? Alex, do you have any stats on that? Yeah. So uh, before we jumped on, we pulled the latest App Store uh, metrics. And I think according to the latest Apple-produced stats, the App Store, the Apple App Store on iPhones and iPads and so forth, has now generated about $100 billion in developer payouts. So that means you know it's about 10, 11 years old, whatever it is. So that's about $10 billion a year. But that's not including the Android App Store, which is also very, very large. So there's probably tens of billions of dollars a year in App Store revenue. And so you know if you can get your app higher in the charts, you can capture a much larger slice of that and do even better for yourself. And that's where companies like this kind of come into play and help developers that might be really good at, say, building games also market them, which is a very different skill set. Right. You, you know, you, as I like to say, it takes money. To make money. Yes, and but uh, App Lovin' has a new studio effect they just launched uh, this month, actually. It's called Lion Studio, I think. What is that? So Lion Studios basically is, it's, it's basically their publishing studio. So a developer will come in with their app and Lion Studios will kind of just push the app out in more ways. They'll give you an option. Do you want to monetize within the app, with, um, outside of the app? Basically, it's kind of like 
a system for them to get their name out there more. And the new round will be helping Lion Studios do that more. We don't know the exact numbers on how much App Loving is getting from each of um, the clients they take on, but we do know that the company is super financially stable from what they tell me, <laughs> and they are en route to Wait, IPO. Is that, is that a quote? Um, is that a we quote are definitely them? very financially stable. That's a hilarious quote. I love that. That's like double click, double click. We're fine. Well, <laughs> we I think are if, fine. If you're, not, if you're not fine after raising $400 million, <laughs> you were pretty not fine before you raised $400 million. So I'm glad they're now super fine. Exactly. Whatever the phrase would be. But, you know, it, it does it does give them uh, the ability to um, invest a lot in like rights to games through their studio. They can prepay for a lot of advertising inventory, kind of snap that up. Um, they can offer guarantees. It's having that kind of cash uh, gives them a lot of financial flexibility to expand their business. Yeah, and who doesn't like helping the little guys? Yeah, I mean that's the nice thing about their story is like it's you know this is not like the Zynga or, or Electronic Arts of the world. It is it's all the small developers who would otherwise really struggle to get up in the charts. Hashtag Feel Good Friday. Feel Good Friday. <laughs> awesome, guys. Well, that is all we have for this week. We will see you back next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to Startups of the Week. Read more startups coverage at sfchronicle.com. And crunchbase.news. I'm Natasha Mascarenas. I'm Owen Thomas. And I'm Alex Wilhelm. And this is Startups of the Week.